0: Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, a marketer lets us in on some retail secrets to help you navigate Black Friday and Cyber Monday and make sure you get the kind of deal that you're hoping for. We find out why the UK Supreme Court has said nay to Scotland's plans to hold another independence referendum in 2023 without consent from the British Parliament, and how a Canadian Supreme Court decision played a big role in that ruling. We speak to a former gang member, and anti-violence activist, about what's driving up gang-related murders in this country to the highest rate on record, fueled by firearms, how to combat it, and why he's not seeing the kind of action from all levels of government that could help turn the tide. But first, hockey lost a legend today. His Hall of Famer and longtime Maple Leaf defenseman, Boris Salmon, died at the age of 71. In August, the Swede announced he'd been diagnosed with ALS, or Lou Gehrig's disease. His former teammate, Mark Curtin, who also was diagnosed with ALS in 2018, joins us to talk about Salming, the player, the teammate, and the fight against a disease that kills a 1,000 Canadians each and every year. The hockey world lost one of its great players, one of its great human beings today. Longtime Toronto Maple Leaf defenseman, Borea Salming, died today of ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease. He was 71 years old. Uh, For those of you like me who grew up in the 70s watching hockey with rapt attention, uh, Salming was, even if you weren't a Leafs fan, Salming was something else. He was the first Swedish-born player inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame. Uh, he joined the Leafs nearly 50 years ago next year, went on to pave the way for what would become a steady flow of European players from Sweden and far beyond into the big leagues, into the NHL. Uh, he was so loved in Toronto, so loved, that this was the ovation he received at Maple Leaf Gardens when he played for Team Sweden in the 1976 Canada Cup.
1: You can hear the applause here at Maple Leaf Gardens for Corey years Many are standing
0: Yeah, that was how much he was loved. Of late, his story um, had become one not just of grace on the ice and off, but also about uh, a diagnosis, his courage after announcing in August that he had been diagnosed with ALS. Um, There is no cure for the progressive neurodegenerative disease. An estimated 3,000 Canadians live with ALS at any given time, 1,000 die each year. You may remember last winter, we spoke with Greg Gow, who was out here in Vancouver, um, and he sadly passed away earlier, uh, a little later this year, uh, after becoming a champion to raise awareness about ALS across the country. Um, Just two weeks ago, though, Salming returned to Toronto as part of the Leafs alumni team in the Hockey Hall of Fame Legends game. Uh, It was an emotional visit. There were a lot of tears, including from his close friend and former captain, Daryl Sittler. It turned out it was a final chance for Toronto to say thank you to one of its most adored athletes. Uh, and yet again, the city showed its love for the man they called the king. And the highest scoring defenseman
1: in Maple Leafs history...
0: Now, one person who could very much understand what Salming and his family were going through when he announced that diagnosis in August was Mark Curtin, one of his former teammates, a man who played with Boris Salming back in 79-80 and eighty eighty one 81 with the Leafs. He was diagnosed with ALS four years ago and has since become an advocate for other ALS patients. And Daryl Sittler actually approached him, asking him if he could reach out to Salming and his family to try to offer some kind of guidance, some kind of help, and he did. And joining me now is Mark Curtin. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Don't worry, Ben. Glad to be here. I was reading what you'd posted on social media. Um, A sad, sad day, and in some ways, probably, um, as you pointed out, a relief, too. Yeah. It was a
2: difficult day today, without a doubt. Um, I had a call from Darrell and Tiger Williams about 9 a.m., so when they the call were two minutes apart, I knew something was up, and uh, and he passed uh, earlier today. But you know Ben, he, uh, as I put in my tweet, he died a he died a good death. In other words, he had yeah. his family all around him, and uh, knowing what I know about ALS and how it can rip you apart, he kind of outsmarted the disease, didn't he? You know, he, yeah. he went through some struggles, but there was more struggles to come. And he realized what the burden would be on his family and uh, decided to, to move on. And uh, in some ways, uh, you know, we, we say that he's one of the smartest hockey players that ever played. But he was even a smarter man to do what he did for his family, in my opinion.
0: Yeah, I mean I was mentioning earlier that we had a guest on the show earlier in the year Greg Gao out here and he he passed yeah. he passed uh, just a few months ago. Yeah. Um I know and Greg just the way well,
2: he, he actually,
0: Oh, do okay. Recru- yeah. He actually recruited me
2: about 2 years ago when he, he started the uh, ALS Action Movement which is a patient-led group uh, that originated in Vancouver. Uh he's the guy that called me to get me involved in that. So I know Greg very well.
0: Yeah. What a, when, what a courageous voice he was as well. You know, he told me once when we were talking that one of the big problems is that, that it's so devastating that those who make their voices heard often aren't around long enough for everyone to listen. And that was a real challenge for him. It is. And you know what? I've
2: said that since the day I was diagnosed back in 2015, um, The problem with the disease is, is you have fearless leaders that are starting to get traction and make momentum, and then they pass on, and there's a restart. And it's been like that ever since the bucket challenge, which was quite a few years ago. So it's over and over and over. But you know what, Ben? I think we're at the point now where what I know is that, you know, we're years away from a cure, not decades anymore. And there's a lot more people that know what ALS is now uh, than a couple of years ago. And that started with Major League Baseball. Um, you know, the inaugural June 2nd Lou Gehrig Day a couple of years ago started it. And now the hockey world, the NHL is aware of it and they're starting to put their arms around it. So I really, really think now that ALS is starting to work its way around. People know
0: what it is now. Yeah, and you've been a big part of that, Mark, I know. Um, what was it like? I mean, it must have been, I remember in August hearing the news, obviously I thought of Greg um, right. hearing the news from Borea Salming and thinking just the fact that you would have reached out to him, it must have been a really difficult time for him and his family. And what did you tell him? You were speaking to um, him quite regularly. Yeah, what happened was Daryl called me because Daryl knew
2: that I had ALS, and him and I used to speak a lot. And he told me about Borea before it had been released. So him and I would have regular Zoom calls with the Salming family. And uh, I had already started. um, Obviously, I was working towards a lot of ALS advocacy, but I was also helping other, let's call them newbies, or people just diagnosed try and guide them through some of the stages and how to deal with stuff. And so it was overwhelming, obviously, for the Salming family, but at least I was able to steer them in the right direction on how to get some meds, um, get to Montreal and see a neurologist there, Um, get your meds. This is what could be coming down the pipe and try to, Keep them ahead of the curve a little bit, um, and I, I do remember one Zoom call in particular when the Hockey Hall of Fame uh, came up, and his wife, Pia, he, uh, shook her head and said, "No, I don't think I don't think he can make it. I'm not sure he feels comfortable." And that's when I piped up and I said, "You know, the one thing about this illness is it's very." Easy to sit back and just let it take control of you. But you've got to take risks with it. And I told him a story about when uh, I was invited to Vancouver by Jimmy Rutherford and and Boudreaux, who I know well, both of them. And I was a little bit anxious about it. But I decided, you know what? I'm going to take that risk. And I went, and it was a fabulous four day trip. And I told him that. And by the end of the Zoom call, his shaking the head was starting to nod forward. And then when Daryl told me a week later he's coming, I was thrilled because I knew with the type of ALS that he has that, you know, that it's very aggressive and that you should take advantage of his chances to see his friends and what have you. And, and we had a great, you had a great trip here.
0: Yeah. Those moments that was what, did, what did, what well, you must've, I mean, obviously you watched it. I mean, it was so, yeah, it was, yeah. it was special. It was special. Um, my wife and
2: I went down to the game and, uh, we went up to, uh, Shanann's, uh suite for uh the second and third period where the family was and Daryl and his wife and, Tiger and his wife and the Maple Leaf alumni box was not far uh, around the corner. So there was a parade of guys coming in and out. But uh, as his wife, Pia said, you know, he just lit up because he knew that all these former teammates and what have you, I mean, it's almost like he knew that his days were numbered and it was like a goodbye, you know, so it was a very, very emotional room, and a lot of love in that room.
0: Yeah, you could you could feel the love from afar. Yeah, it, it was. Worked. And then, uh, the fans, the
2: fans. Uh, well, you heard the fans, and uh, it was uh, something that none of us will forget. <laughs>
0: Boreas Salming scoring there for the least something he did a lot a lot of he's still the team's leader in assists uh, after all these years. Mark Curtin is with us. Uh, we're talking about the legacy of Boreas Salming. He passed away today at the age of seventy one of ALS, something that he announced a diagnosis of just back in August. You may remember, you may have seen yeah. the images of him back um, uh, in Toronto being celebrated by the fans there a few weeks ago, two weeks ago tomorrow night, actually. Mark was there as well. Um, Mark, what was it like to walk into that dressing room back in 1979, 80, and be with with Daryl Sittler and and Borea Salming? Oh, you know what? It it was surreal. You know, even though I'm originally from Regina,
2: uh, most of my growing up was in Toronto. So to, to put on the leaf sweater was really something. But uh, that team in particular, you're right. Lots and lots of uh, what would turn out to be legends on that uh, late 70s team, early 80s team. But, uh, you know, it was, it was funny. Like the uh, Maple Leaf alumni asked uh, various alumni if they wanted to do videos uh, to send to Borea, the good, get well, or not, or, uh, goodwill videos and stuff. One of the ones I sent, was I remember one of my first uh, training camps? Uh, Boria pulled me aside and he, uh, he taught me how to do a can opener move, which is not allowed in today's game, but um, where I would win a face off back to the corner, let the center jump by me, and I'd stick my stick in under his arm and give him a little twist. And then I'd go around and get the puck, which worked great for a little guy like me. And I told Boria on the video, that because of that one move that he taught me, it enabled me to play over 700 professional games as a checker. And, and <laughs> it was so funny to me that to think back, and, and I was only one of probably 100 guys that Boria helped out. He was such a such a great teammate. Like he was a great teacher. He gave you as much time as he needed. Um, He was so skilled, and I remember even in in drills at practice, like one-on-ones, I never wanted to go down a one-on-one on on him because he was like an octopus. You couldn't get around the guy, and he blocked shots, and he he was just one-of-a-kind, you know, Ben.
0: Yeah, I, I remember watching him as a kid and thinking how skilled he was. But also, in a, at a oh, time man. in the league, especially in the in the seventies when it was a bit, you know, obviously a bit rougher yeah. than it is today, how Boria never seemed to be intimidated. But he never seemed to be—he uh, wasn't a goon either. And it was—he must have—it must have been tough too to be to sort of carry the weight of, of 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 the European player on him and all the reputation that they had of not being tough enough. He was plenty tough. It seemed. Oh, and he had the mental toughness, eh, hey, Ben. Like he was so mentally
2: tough, because I mean, words can't even describe what it feels like to be going into Philadelphia to play the Broad Street Bullies. I mean, you know, and and he, like you say, he was uh, one of the leaders from Europe, and uh, and everybody on his back, and he just fought his way right through. Tough as nails, that guy. Tough as nails.
0: Those are good memories. I can't believe he taught you a move that kept you in the league as a checking forward for, for uh, more than 250 NHL yeah, games legally. to top it all off. Yeah, illegally. Yeah. Didn't, you can
2: use
0: that move today. No, he was, uh, yeah, that's, is there anything we don't know about him? I mean, he, he seemed to know all the tricks in the book. That was kind of the things that you probably didn't notice if you weren't paying close attention. Well,
2: one of the other funny things that we laughed about it the other day was, uh, And I couldn't understand it again. I'm a rookie. I'm sitting there getting ready for a home game at the gardens. And uh, I'm looking around. I'm going, where's Moria? Where's King? And then Ian Turnbull looks at me He says, he'll be here in a minute. You know what? He'd come in, and he would get dressed in a minute and a half. And he'd go out and warm up, and then he'd end up first star of the game. And he did that time after time after time. I've never seen a guy dress faster. And well, nobody seemed to worry at all, like Daryl and Annie and Earl Thompson, all those guys. Nobody asked where, where, uh, where he was because they knew he'd come in two or three minutes before a warm-up and he'd be dressed the way he goes. But oh, and, nice. and I don't know any player in the league that did that.
0: Former Maple Leaf and Borea Salming teammate Mark Curtin is with us. We're reminiscing about Borea Salming, who passed away today at the age of 71 after announcing he'd been diagnosed with ALS back in August. Uh, We've been talking about a social media post that Mark put up today. Mark was diagnosed with ALS back in 2018. He's become a vocal advocate for patients, ALS patients. He even helped Borea and his family out after his diagnosis. We were talking about uh, the decision for Borea to come back to Toronto last two weeks ago now. Uh, to be celebrated and what turned out to be a farewell really from the city that so adored him for so long. Um, a bit more about just the fight to try to raise awareness, Mark. I know it's been difficult. You said earlier, you feel like we're closer now no. than we have been ever before to some sort of cure, yeah. but it's still a really difficult diagnosis for anybody that it, it demands a lot of movement, demands leaving home to get treatment. It's still There's still a lot of road to go, I guess oh, there's a
2: lot of road to go. But, you know, the only way that you're going to get somewhere is you've got to be loud. And for the longest period of time, we had it like with the bucket challenge, it got loud, and then it quieted for quite a while. We're starting to get loud again. And uh, the only way, as you say, that we're going to cut into some of this red tape, because one of the problems is, the, uh, the government pathways are so slow. Uh, when when a, a drug approval gets into Health Canada, it can be upwards of a year and a half, two years uh, um, approval process. And by the time it's approved and goes through the provinces and the pricing or what have you, it could be three years before it's in the in the pal's body. And with a lifeline of uh, three to five years not a big window there. so as a, you know we're Greg starting this group of a patient-led uh, group. I'm sure his goals were to get big, big big and loud and reach out to gr- groups like Health Canada and Canada and other government entities which we've been doing and get loud and that's the only way that we're going to turn some heads to get what we want. Uh, The other thing we're after is to get more trials into Canada. There's over 190 trials around the world in in, uh, Phase 2 and Phase 3. We've got to get more to Canada. But, you know, for me, myself, what I'm trying to do is I'm talking to the National Hockey League and seeing what we can do there um, with the uh, seven Canadian teams and, and, and try and pursue that for Canada. But like I said earlier, Ben, I think I think that we're years away from it here, not decades anymore. I think the voice is out there, but we just got to all pull on the same rope and uh, create more advocacy and gather more research money, get more treatments into Canada and push the government on the pathway approvals. those are our goals.
0: And I guess Borea coming back for that farewell, it put it into the spotlight in such a such a poignant yeah. way. Um, it must be I was thinking watching him and, and thinking about you too, about how you know, for people who once relied on the strength of their bodies to make a living, yeah. know, professional athletes, how tough it must be to be vulnerable enough to walk out when, when your body's giving up on you.:
2: It is really tough. I and mean, you're the first person that's asked that. And you're absolutely correct. Like a a professional athlete or any athlete for that matter knows their body better than anybody. And when you do reach the elite in a given sport, which we did, um, it's a shocker to see your body start to fall apart. Like in my case, I had my first symptom in 2015, believe it or not. And my ALS worked its way from my right arm. To my left arm, left leg, right leg, and it's inevitable that everybody that has ALS will end up in their front and their respiratory and breathing and swallowing and stuff. But the type of ALS that Borean has, which was bulbar, was a very, very aggressive one that already started in the in the in the front, uh, which is the worst spot, and uh, and gets very aggressive. In my case, I've had some longevity because it's a different type of ALS um, just working on my limbs. But yes, all of a sudden, try to lift a barbell five years ago and it slips out of your hand or swing a golf club and your hand slips and then it falls and stuff, on and on. You just kind of look in the mirror and say, how is that possible? when I was so strong at one time. But you hit the nail on the head. It, it's a shocker.
0: And the courage it takes to, to speak out, to, to allow people to see you vulnerable as well. I mean I thought of that seeing Boria last week, a few weeks ago, right? Just the, the courage it takes to to accept the love, but also to 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 be vulnerable like that.
2: Well that's that's another interesting question because at the very beginning when I was diagnosed, I thought, you know what? I don't really want everybody to know about this. And uh, I remember my wife and I, you know, after we left the hospital, you know, in shock, you know, all of a sudden your retirement plans and future are all out the window, and it's a real blow. And then you got to tell the kids. Then you got to make a decision: am I going to go hide in the corner and cry, or am I going to stand up and fight this thing? And Spread the word and do what I could do and try and make a difference, and that's the direction my wife and I chose, and we've never let up on it. But it's, uh, but it's a real, it's a real battle, I'll tell you. You know, I've never seen uh, or heard of anything like it, and I've lost ten, ten good friends in the last six months, and eight new ones have come on board. So what you had said in the beginning of the show. Is bang on. Thousand die, thousand get diagnosed, like a re- revolving door.
0: Well, Mark, I really appreciate your time tonight. Uh, I look forward to having you back on. Continue to speak up, um, and uh, and you know, Boris Salming. Of course, uh, we'll remember what a great hockey player he was, obviously, but we'll also remember uh, the courage that it took for him to walk out there a few weeks ago and, and say goodbye as well.
2: Well, I think I think the king realized after a few Zoom calls, that, you know, he can be a part of this as well and and getting the advocacy out there because of the legendary status that, that he has, you know, is, is far more reaching than a lot of people that have ALS could ever do. And uh, I think he recognized that. And I think that's when he thought about it and said, you know what? I may not be well enough to go to Toronto and deal with the, uh, the tribute, but I'm going to do it for those reasons. I truly believe that's what he thought. And uh, then he went back to Sweden and did it again there uh, in a big tribute there. So uh, God bless Borea. And, uh, and thank you, Ben, for having me on the show. Every little bit of advocacy, no matter what it is, is helpful, without a
0: doubt. Mark, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for your time tonight and all your insight into this. I wish you strength, as always, and I look forward to talking to you again. Okay, thanks, Ben. Have a great night. Bye-bye. Well, it's just past midnight in the East, in Toronto, and elsewhere in the Eastern Time Zone, so it is, in fact, Black Friday already although it feels like it's been going on for days now doesn't it i mean i've been hearing black friday ads i've been seeing them on my phone for days and days and days and days now let me know are you going to do any shopping this year it feels like i mean with prices so high it feels like getting a good deal is probably a good idea let me know 8773999898 is the text line 8773999898 let me know who you are and where you are you can talk about anything we can talk about black friday cyber monday what's on your mind how your days going Anything, things you've heard on the show tonight, share your thoughts with me if you feel like you should. Um, But Black Friday, you know, it's a big, it's a big, it's not like weeks, it's weeks. So there are ads uh, online proclaiming big savings. And it turns out this year, because things are kind of back to normal, that a lot of us are planning to hit the mall, believe it or not.
3: A survey by professional services firm JLL found 90% of respondents plan to spend time in shopping centres. But gift-giving budgets are expected to be down 13% as Canadians spend more money on basics like rent, groceries and gas. Two-thirds of respondents to a survey by the Chartered Professional Accountants of Canada say inflation's going to make it harder to buy gifts this season. More than 20% expect to take on debt to pay for gifts. Don Kelly, the Canadian Press.
0: So that brings us back to Black Friday and Cyber Monday. Now, Black Friday's origins, so the story goes, uh, had, are sort of rooted in Philadelphia in the 60s. When legend has it, fans used to descend on the city between Thanksgiving and Saturday when the Army-Navy football game was on, and they would spend the Friday shopping. It has then evolved, of course, into what it is today. In Canada, it's sort of Look, if you look into the history of it, it kind of dates back to the early part of the century. The dollar was around par. Uh, retailers here wanted to keep people from going to the States on Black Friday. So they had their own Black Friday sales here, and it's just you know evolved from there. But one marketing professor has some pretty good advice on Black Friday about what to look out for, what companies, retailers are trying to get you to do, and how to make sure that what you're getting is in fact A good deal getting the best bang for your buck so to speak and joining me now is brad davis he's an associate professor with the lazarus school of business at laurier university thanks so much for your time my pleasure so this feels like a like a a different, I mean, we're sort of coming out of the pandemic. We haven't really had what we used to consider to be the mad dash at, uh, on Black Friday, where you'd see people stampeding over each other to buy a TV. Uh, <laughs> but we've also gotten very used to online shopping. So this feels like it's going to be a sort of a, a different kind of Black Friday, Cyber Monday.
1: Yeah, I agree. And, and it just, of course, uh, during the pandemic, that was kind of a, a statistical blip. So it's hard to project, but before COVID disrupted everything, um, Cyber Monday passed Black Friday in terms of, of sales volume. So w- I think we, we can expect that that gap will widen because you now have people who have spent two years learning about different, uh, online websites and becoming much more comfortable with it. There have been companies who have uh, been uh, conducting sales before Black Friday, and they're going to be after Black Friday. This is the starter's gun for the the whole sale bonanza that is going to run pre-Christmas and then post-Christmas.
0: It is remarkable because it used to be. I mean, I remember. I'm old enough to remember when Boxing Day was when the sales bonanza was, yeah. and now it, was it feels boxing like Boxing
1: Day, not, yeah, not Boxing just, Month or yeah. Boxing Boxing <laughs>
0: Season, because it starts. Yeah. Now it feels like it starts right, you know, sort of early November and then carries right on yeah. through. It really has become part of our psyche, though, and quite quickly. I mean, it's it only really came to Canada about 20 years ago. Black Friday, that is. Cyber Monday is even more recent. Uh, how important has it become?
1: Uh, it's, it's a, I mean, it's a major event in terms of, of planning for, uh, you know, for retailers. So I think they, they manage, uh, you know, inventory management is very much based around that. And, you know, consumers have it uh, circled on their calendar. So it, it's become something of a ritual occasion for a significant number of consumers who plan around it, you know, plan uh, the excuse they're going to use to get the day off. So it's, uh, it's very much entrenched, uh, I think in the whole, you know, consumer market now.
0: Yeah, we've, I've been reading a bit this year, and we were talking a bit earlier about uh, supply chain issues, but also that uh, retailers have quite a bit of inventory this year. Uh, there are some fears of recession and so on, which means consumers tend to draw back a bit. Uh, what do you expect to see out there when it comes to deals this year? Because there's that there's sort of a two-sided coin to this. You have r- rumors of more inventory, but also supply chain issues.
1: I, I would expect the deals will be pretty good. It may be a little more erratic than than past years because I think there'll be some areas where there may not be the traditional kind of deals, perhaps in appliances and electronics where they have had some supply chain issues. Um, but there are other areas where, where in all likelihood they have higher levels of inventory and, and may have even ordered larger volumes in anticipation of of uh, of supply chain challenges. So it's also become intensely competitive uh so there's there's nothing that spurs you on as a retailer to offer better and better deals than looking across the street and seeing a competitor offering better and better deals so it's become so competitive that uh i think that that really drives the dynamic as well in terms of wanting to make sure that you you kind of capture those consumer dollars ahead of your uh uh your competitor so i i think And and even with inflation worries that, yes, they're there, they're constant, we hear about them all the time, but we are also armed with credit cards and we have no compunction in using them quite significantly. And the idea that this is a sale can also make people believe that they're actually uh, defeating inflation because they're getting something on sale and therefore this is the opportunity where they really should spend a little bit more, rather than regular time when things are at uh, at regular price and inflation is going to be most painful.
0: Yeah, I was interested by some of the surveys that were done over the past few months about consumer sentiment, where it seemed, although people were worried about the future and not wanting to spend too much, they were certainly willing to buy stuff on sale. That was one of the things that emerged very clearly. Although you've always warned, uh, and this goes back to you know before in, in, you know for years now, that uh, buyer beware at this time of year as well. Don't be too dazzled. Uh oh yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah, definitely. <laughs> this is maybe the the sacrilegious content whereas at a marketer I, I kind of like a magician divulge some of the secrets behind the screen. We are all about encouraging impulse purchase at this point in time. So the the giant yellow signs that say for sale, where we're we're setting up um you know regular retail price, et cetera, we're kind of Setting up consumers to to make deals probably look a lot more attractive than they may very well be. The big thing that goes on at this point in time is that fear of missing out, or what economists call law of scarcity, which is this idea that if I don't buy it now, I may never get a chance again, and, and that's sort of part of of the whole uh, ambiance, and and that's often the reason that you get these purchases where. You come home with a beekeeper's outfit and say, well, but it was half off and it was the last one on sale, even though I don't have any bees. yeah, Um, It's that kind of mentality that you really have to guard against and uh, try and and diffuse because that's often where you make the poor purchases, the irrational purchases.
0: And I find it so much more... Difficult online because the whole thing is structured to tell you, oh, there's 400 other people looking at the beekeeper's costume, and <laughs> oh, look, someone just bought one, and you know, and you're sort of sitting there. It's it's like being, yeah, yeah. it, it could be quite, uh, it could be quite captivating, to be honest.
1: Well, and there's been a lot of interesting studies as well with, again, a paying with credit, but paying online is even worse because there's no physical sense of transaction. You just kind of click buttons, and it's yours. You you own it. So that, that sense of actually giving something up like cash or, or turning your credit card over is not there online, which makes it even easier to be swayed more by the idea of acquiring this than the sense that you're actually giving up some some savings, some money in the process. So the ability for that kind of impulse purchase to be driven by online is probably even greater than uh, than in stores, which is is, I, I think, a something. bit of concern for, uh, for public policymakers.
0: Brad Davis is with us. He's an associate professor at the Lazaridis School of Business at uh, Laurier University. We're talking about Black Friday and Cyber Monday uh, from both a marketing perspective as well as from a consumer perspective. Uh, we know that marketers uh rub their hands for this. This is a big time of year for them, uh, and they pull out all the stops to make sure that we're paying attention um and that we uh could be enticed into buying stuff we both need and stuff we don't need. So one of the things that you've always, and this probably goes without saying, but Figure out how much it was originally, right? Like that's really how much was it originally, and could it possibly be on sale in two weeks' time for even less? Is another another thing that I've noticed over the years that you know uh, there's not. Um, again, you, you, sh- you have to be informed on these days because so much of it looks so attractive.
1: Yeah, and it it, it begs that question of when is a deal a deal and. Um, you know, there's a lot of literature about how consumers make decisions using price, and and we talk about what we refer to as a reference price, which is this sense that you have of what the regular price is, and you use that as a base to compare whether the deal is good or not. The difficulty is the vast majority of us really don't have idea any idea what the regular price is, and so when you have a big sign that tells you this is the regular price, we tend to go by that. That's the the cue that marketers implant and and that is problematic in terms of assessing when a deal is is good the only way to really do it i guess scientifically is you 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 almost have to track the item a couple of months in advance to see what the regular price is what sales were offered and then track it afterwards to see whether it's on sale for less or so which of course the overwhelming majority of us will never do no. um so in, in a way i sort of counsel consumers it's Look, you're not going to do that. So are, are you happy with what you paid for? it? If you're happy with what you paid for it, then that's criteria number one. Criteria number two is, are you still using it a month from now? If you're still using it a month from now, then okay, just be happy. If you're not, if it just goes right into the back of your closet, then then you made a mistake regardless of how much you paid.
0: Yeah, the proverbial bee costume, bee, beekeepers costume, which is a great example of the kind of things that you end up buying, you know, I, you know I'll wear that one day. That's always the, uh, <laughs> yeah, and, and it was, and it was yeah. so cheap that it was almost like getting it for free, which of course it is.
1: isn't. And it was the last one. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It, it's all working against the old primal brain there, isn't it? <laughs> in some yeah. senses, yeah. you've you, you advised, I, I was, this was kind of a comment you made in an interview and I'm not sure where it was going, but you advised not going to the mall alone, which I thought was interesting too, because mm. I guess some people will head back. To do Black Friday the way it was meant to be done uh, back in the old days, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, there's a little bit of a caveat to that in terms of maybe pick who you go with, right? Because you, you don't want someone that's going to en- end up into sort of competitive spending. You know, they bought something, therefore you have to as well. But there's a huge amount of research that tells us there's all sorts of of decision bias that we are subject to that that make for quotes irrational decision. The difficulty is that we are very, very bad at recognizing decision bias in ourselves. Even when we're kind of warned in advance, it, it still doesn't matter a lot. We are very good at identifying these biases in somebody else. Uh huh. So that's the idea that if you go with somebody else, particularly maybe make a little pack in advance that so you're, you're kind of work as a team, you can test out purchases on them. And they're maybe the ones that that will inject that voice of rationality that, that says, y- you know, you really don't need this or I'm pretty sure that this is going to be on sale again. And, and they can kind of diffuse or, or they can kind of balance that emotional kind of irrational fever that may take over you. So that that was the idea of going with somebody else. A buddy a system,
0: so to speak. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. If, if I if I swim too deep, pull me back.
0: Yeah, well, let's say, I mean, my wife and I are so good at this that we actually manage to buy nothing a lot of the time because we both talk each other <laughs> out of whatever it is. Yeah. And you had a last morning yeah. on exchange rates too. I know people who live near the border like to go down to the states sometimes for Black Friday, but the exchange rate is something you got to factor into as well, and yeah. as as well as some of the other costs.
1: Yeah, and I—I I mean, I actually live. I'm in St. Catharines, so I'm right mm-hmm. at the border. So I see the. Ords of traffic going across, and and I periodically, as as they have been lined up for an hour to cross the border, I've always had a desire to, you know, knock on their window and ask them. So, did you factor in, you know, the the hour and a half drive it took you to get here? Did you factor in the gas? Did you factor in the exchange rates? Did you factor all of those things in to get a sense about whether you're really getting good deals or not? Because in a lot of situations, I think that cross border shopping, it's kind of an adventure that I think counters the, some of the the measurement about whether you're really getting good deals or not. Uh, Yeah. The exchange rate is not working in our favor right now, but uh, a lot of people don't quite know how to calculate it. So they,
0: they just don't. Not to mention, you're really not allowed to bring much back, anything back. If you go for, (laughs) for a very short period of time, Uh, Brad Uh, Davis, thanks so much for your advice on this tonight. Appreciate it. My pleasure. I'm going to share a few Scotland stories with you now, because it's a place that's pretty close close to my heart. I lived there in 1991, worked at a hotel. I went back there in 1995, worked there again. Um, I had some family in a place called Kilcotti, which is in Fife, just across the way, uh, across the Firth of, um, the Firth of Forth from, uh, from Edinburgh, where I was living. Uh, and then of course I worked, I've worked in England. So I worked in London, I was based in London. So I was there for the 2014 referendum, independence referendum in Scotland, covering it, was there for more than a week. Um, and it was a really fascinating experience. Of course, having grown up in Quebec, uh, I was only too familiar with uh, the notion of an independence referendum and what's at stake and how um, how passions can get pretty, pretty intense uh, as it goes on. Uh, and one of the questions that often came up the back then, to the uh, pro independent side, was how often are you going to do this? Or is it going to be a never ending referendum sort of idea? Uh, as it often was in Quebec until it wasn't anymore. This idea that it would always hang over every election. There was this idea that there would be another referendum eventually. Now, 1995 came very, very close. And again, I don't think anyone would have predicted in 1995 that we wouldn't have another one. You know, here we are 27 years later, and there hasn't been another one in Quebec. Well, in Scotland, they had one in 2014. Um, It failed. 45% support, 55% opposed. And at that point, it was sort of thought to be a generational thing. They wouldn't have another one anytime soon. And then Brexit happened. Then Britain decided to leave the European Union, or we should say England decided to leave the European Union because in Scotland, they voted massively in favor of staying in the EU. Um, So it sort of changed the dynamic, didn't it, at that point? Uh, The landscape was different. And so the idea of having another referendum quickly reemerged in Scotland. Of course, there's been a conservative government at Westminster in London for a long time now, more than a decade, a party that no one in Scotland ever votes for. So you have an unrepresentative, to some extent in their eyes, an unrepresentative government in London that pulled them out of a union that they liked to be a part of. So the idea was we'll have another referendum in 2023. That was the deal. Nicola Sturgeon, who's the uh, first minister in Scotland, said, let's have another independence referendum. Uh, And there seemed to be quite a bit of support for that. The problem is that under their system, they need the British Parliament to agree to it. Back in 2013, 2014, the British Prime Minister, David Cameron, agreed to the referendum. This time around, they've said, forget it. Um, So they brought it to court. And the UK Supreme Court has said, no. No. You need to ask, you need to get, this needs to be a joint decision. You can't just hold a unilateral referendum on independence. Uh, You need Westminster to agree to it. And at this point in time, neither the government nor the opposition, the Labour leader, Keir Starmer, seem to be in any position to want to agree to one. So uh, we're left with a Supreme Court decision that says this is not going to happen and a Scottish government saying, we're going to try and find a way to do something anyway. Oddly enough, we spoke over the summer with Lorna Slater. She's a Canadian from Calgary who is the co-leader of the Scottish Green Party, they're in government right now. She's a minister, um, also pro-independence. And we asked her about what if Westminster said no. Here's what she had to say.
1: But instead of trying to tell a good story about what lies ahead of us if we stay in the union, all they do is instead say, oh, you can't have a referendum. So they're they're not holding up the courage of their convictions. It's an undemocratic position. So they need to decide, is this a democracy or not?
0: It is quite the question, right? Who gets to decide? Now, oddly enough, back in 1998, after the last Quebec referendum, our Supreme Court weighed in on this one. And in their decision, not to crib note it too much for you, but the idea was that with a clear question and a clear majority, the rest of the Federation would have to negotiate with Quebec about its departure. So we sort of laid down the groundwork for what a departure would look like, but um, It turns out the UK Supreme Court decision leaned pretty heavily on what Canada had already done, what the Canadian Supreme Court decision was back in 1998. So there's a real Canadian flavor to this whole drama that's unfolded over the past 24 hours uh, in Britain. And not surprisingly, because there's been a lot of eyes here, on that uh, movement, the independence movement, and its and its ties to what happened in Quebec, to our experience with it as well, although the political systems are very different. So, what lies ahead now for the Scottish independence movement, and what exactly did Canada, the Canadian Supreme Court ruling? How did it play out in the UK Supreme Court's decision? Joining me now with more on that is Catherine Frost. She's a professor of political science at McMaster University in Hamilton. Thanks so much for your time. Uh, happy to be here, Ben. This is an interesting one because I think a lot of Canadians follow what's going on with the Scottish independence movement because it's so reminiscent of, of Quebec's. And so we sort of follow the legalese of it. We follow the ups and downs. Uh, just to bring us up to date, uh, Nicholas Nicola Sturgeon, the, the leader of the SNP, uh, the, you know, the, the de facto leader of Scotland right now was hoping to have another referendum in 2023, but there was a roadblock and that was no permission from Westminster. So that's what the Supreme Court was deciding on.
3: That's right. That's the ruling. And they they definitively said, no, you can't unless you get permission from Westminster.
0: And I guess that permission isn't isn't forthcoming.
3: No, there's been a they've had a sequence of uh, British prime ministers lately, and they've all in sequence said, no, we're not going to approve another referendum. And part of the reason is The argument is when they had a referendum back in 2014 on uh, Scottish independence, kind of the sort of selling feature of that was that it was a once in a generation event. So they had their once in a generation event. And so as far as folks in Westminster are concerned is you don't need to do that again for a while The only wrinkle is, of course, you had Brexit in the middle, which kind of changed the context. And so as far as the Scottish government is concerned, that creates a mandate for another referendum. And so there's a real disagreement over whether one's appropriate or not.
0: Yeah, it would certainly seem the landscape changed fundamentally after 2014 because of Brexit. And certainly the support for Brexit was very low in Scotland. Support for the Conservative Party that's been in power now for a decade is very low in Scotland. So it feels like the winning conditions, to, to coin a, an old phrase, seem to be there to some extent in Scotland right now. Um, what has Nicola Sturgeon now said she's going to do, given that she will not have permission to have this referendum as planned?
3: Her options are limited. One of the interesting things about the the Scottish case is, they're very committed to it. the Scottish government is very committed to independence, and it's been the same government since 2000. So 15 years of the same government saying we'd like to have independence. You know, they've only managed to have the one referendum, and it doesn't look like they can have another. So what Nicola Sturgeon's has suggested is she's going to regard the next national election as a kind of referendum in lieu of an actual referendum and see what the outcomes are there and whether people are still voting very Pro Scottish national independence mandate, which they have traditionally done electorally, so it's kind of a, a winning uh, gambit for her. I just don't think that it's the typical way that states signal that they are moving towards independence. So it's a it's pretty atypical that way. So it, it's a very tricky, tricky uh, approach she's she's taking.
0: It is because it also demands that I, well, I guess it, not just the SNP, but the Scottish National Party, but maybe those, those other parties that support independence, such as the Green Party, uh, who have a Canadian co leader, actually, that we had on the show a while back. But that would demand that the SNP get 50% of the vote. No, and also that, and we found this out in Quebec back in the time, back in the day, people don't, didn't just vote for the PQ because of independence. There are other reasons as well. And, and I, I think sometimes, uh, equating a national election with sort of uh, a single question could be a bit of a, can be a bit of a tricky, a tricky thing to do, as you point out.
3: Yeah, I, no, I think you've you've exactly hit hit the nail on the head. Is that we don't generally regard a general election of some kind as. It's hard to say you've got a clear mandate out of that because someone could vote because, you know, they want a new road put in and they're not really bothered about, you know, whether you're an independentist or not. They just want their road. So it's not a clear cut kind of mandate, although clearly Nicola Sturgeon and the Scottish National Party wants to make that argument. The problem is for an independent vote or for an independence movement to get sort of broad legitimacy, it really needs to be recognized internationally as well as a powerful mandate. And I think it'll be very hard to sell it that way. It's going to be tricky to to kind of sell this, although I think what a powerful vote could do is make quite clear that there is a constituency to look at independence, I don't think you can definitively say we have a mandate at that point. And I don't think anyone around the world would look at that and say, oh, well, in that case, Scotland has a mandate for independence.
0: Right. And, and if, if there's a change of government in in Britain as well, I, I mean, I was seeing that Labour leader Keir Starmer, I mean, the polls suggest he, w- he would win another election, who knows, but uh, in Britain these days. But he's also mm-hmm. come out and said he's not so keen on granting that, that um that power to scotland but if scotland continues to elect snp leaders you would think at some point uh, they would have to acquiesce i mean this is the will of the scottish people to some extent
3: that's exactly it and in a funny way this recent judgment although i don't think anyone was really surprised by it no one expected the british supreme court to kind of go okay no actually they can do they can have referendums whenever they feel like it I think what the current judgment does and it it's it's makes sense by the standards of British law it really is makes sense by what they uh, the way they approach these things but it sets up a real contest between constitutionalism and law on one side and popular democracy on the other and when you've got consistent powerful popular movement in favor of some kind of democratic expression and all law can say is well you can't ask that question. I think the one thing that Nicholas Sturgeon walks away from this kind of strange encounter with is a mandate to say Scottish democracy is not what it should be, because we can't ask ourselves that question if you compare it to Quebec. Quebec can ask itself that question, do we want to be part of Canada, kind of at its own discretion. That's because it's part of a federal system and has an awful lot of already devolved powers. Uh, Scotland doesn't have that. And so I think there is some kind of tension that's going to build there and whether and, and how that's going to play out in the, the future years. And for future governments or for a Labour government, these are all sort of unknown territory yeah it
0: certainly takes the whole notion of devolution within the united kingdom whether it be wales whether it be northern ireland but certainly scotland and takes it to its crux right just how much power has been devolved if if a, if a place such as scotland can't ask itself that that very essential question i understand the notion of never of the never endums right we clearly even when i was there in 2014 covering this there was a lot of concern there you know alex Salmon, who was the previous leader of the snp nicholas sturgeon who replaced him uh were asked repeatedly like is this it for now will you lay this to rest? And I think maybe it came up a bit too quickly. But you're right. Fundamentally, just how much power does the Scottish Parliament have if it can't ask its own people this question?
3: Yeah. I mean, and, and, that's, a, and that's a democratic issue. My understanding is, uh, Sturgeon's take on this, is if this is a really meaningful union of partners, of equal partners, then they have to be able to ask themselves that question and that you can't have one side saying we we're going to determine what you can even ask yourself or not. It's a tricky question overall, whether, whether this should be sort of brought up, but the, the flip side of it is, and we've seen this in Quebec is that when you keep putting independence referendas and that can be a kind of disruptive force in politics, people, they tend to sort of hijack the agenda And there's a lot of economic uncertainty that goes with it and so forth. So you don't I can see the wisdom of people saying, well, you don't want to have them kind of on tap constantly. So democracy is good, but you it is a question of of how to make sure you get enough of it without so much of it that there is just just endless uncertainty in your political system.
0: Catherine Frost is with us. She's a professor of political science at McMaster University. We're talking about a UK Supreme Court decision this week uh, that denied um, the Scottish Parliament the unilateral power to have another referendum on Scottish independence. Westminster, the British Parliament, would have to agree. David Cameron, the Prime Minister of Britain back in 2014, had agreed uh, to allow Scotland to have a referendum, for which he came under a lot of criticism at times, by the way. Uh, That was defeated. They wanted to have another one after Brexit. That has been said. Listen, you need Westminster's permission to do so, and that's caused some uh, caused some, some caused a bit of a ruckus in in the UK this week. Uh, Catherine, there was a lot of Canadian content in that Supreme Court decision, and it was interesting because the Supreme Court decision back in in the late nineties over Quebec's rights essentially allowed it to have a clear allowed it to become independent on a clear question and a clear majority. said the rest of the federation had to negotiate. The, the UK Supreme Court kind of turned that on its head, didn't it? No
3: entirely they actually right. cited the canadian judgment in their ruling and what they cited from the canadian ruling was interesting because there was an argument that says it, it, an argument in international law that says that there should be a self determination of peoples right and that issue came up in the canadian case and the canadian supreme court went look that doesn't apply to quebec because it's it really only applies to oppressed occupied, colonized people. That isn't Quebec, and therefore we set it aside. The British Supreme Court cited that Canadian ruling and said, look, Scotland's not any more oppressed than Quebec, therefore this self-determination argument doesn't work. So they were citing it and citing it to say, you can't just have referendums. The big difference, and I think this is why you're saying it's sort of, it's quite a different ruling in the British case, is that Quebec can have a referendum when it wants to, because it's a powerful sub-regional unit of a federation that's very devolved. Canada has a very devolved federal system. That's not the case with Scotland. Scotland only has a very short, limited set of powers that are handed to it by Westminster. And Westminster said, you don't get the power to have referendums when you want to. And therefore, even though it looks like the same ruling and they're citing the same principles, you get a very different in Scotland because when you say, well, we're not approving your referendum – Quebec goes, well, we don't care. We're going to have one anyway. And Scotland is left sort of unable to articulate any independence ref- preferences whatsoever.
0: Yeah, I was, you know, the clear the clear majority and the clear question. It left a lot to interpretation, although I have to profess that Scotland's question was very clear the first time very. around. And they promised to make it very clear this time, too. So having been in Quebec through uh, two referenda, I always thought that was a good thing. This is not going to go away clearly. But you you wonder you wonder if there can't be another one whether it does in some ways curb the momentum of this whole movement for a bit.
3: It's hard to see how they move forward. But I tend to think Nicola Sturgeon's been at this for a while. I don't think she's going to cooler jets at this point. And the other thing that's kind of the broader context for this, I guess, is the fact that we really don't have established international law on how you have a lawful secession or a lawful independence movement this is part of the reason that the Canadian ruling is so influential because it's the closest thing to a statement of how to do lawful independence that exists pretty much anywhere in the world. uh, And why this then made referendums so influential because they were a central part of the Canadian ruling. But that was just the Canadian experience sort of being exported and being adopted and being borrowed because there really wasn't a, a thoughtful framing of how to do this whether we will see in Scotland and saying, okay, that works for federal States. Mm. It simply can't be exported to unitary States. Like Spain is in the same situation where they they tried to have a referendum in Catalonia Mm. and the national government said no. And they've got these horrible scenes of ballot boxes being, being hauled out of people's hands. And, and so when we export a federal solution to a unitary state you, you get a very different sort of power dynamic. So it may be that it's about time these things were revisited and rethought uh, and whether Scotland's going to be the place to do it. They certainly seem very committed to a lawful solution, a lawful path forward, whatever that's going to look like. Uh, and they seem to have some thoughtful people. So I I don't think it's going to, go away anytime soon. The, the Scots have had a fairly independent mind for uh, hundreds, if not thousands of years, so I think it'll it'll stick around for a while yet.
0: Well, Catherine Frost, thank you so much for your time on this.
3: My pleasure. Statistics
0: Canada put out um, new numbers on homicide this week, and there were some interesting things in there because uh, murders that were at their highest in Canadian history, 788 people were murdered across the country last year. Now, there are many more of us now than there were 40 years ago. So the murder rate isn't what it was back in the mid-70s when it was over three. It's closer to two now. Uh, but still, it's at the highest it's been since the mid-2000s. Um, and a lot of it, a lot of what's driving it is gang-related violence, gang-related murders, which are around make up around 23% 184 of those 788 in 2021, and that's the highest rate at least since the federal government started tracking that data back in 2005. The highest rates by province were seen in Saskatchewan and Manitoba, the highest rates by city, Regina, Thunder Bay, Winnipeg. Um, But you look into it, and and clearly there is an issue right now with gang-related violence and gang-related murders. And one of the things that stands out there too is a vast majority of those homicides are gun-related or they're caused by guns, they're shootings. A lot of other murders are not. Um, And it's been, you know, so obviously gun violence, gang violence, the murder rate, um, drugs, and so forth, they're all tied into one big package and we need to tackle all of them if we want to figure out how to combat it. But clearly uh, gang-related violence is on the upswing and murders are on the upswing and we need to find a way to try to Turn the tide. And who better to help us explain what the problem is and perhaps how to solve it than Marcel Wilson, who's president and co founder of the anti violence organization One by One Movement. He's also a former gang member himself, and he speaks to us tonight from Toronto. Thanks so much for your time, Marcel. Much appreciated. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. You know, I've seen you testify about these things in the past, parliamentary committees. I mean, you've been telling this story for quite a while now. Did these statistics surprise you at all, that these, uh, the, the, the gang murder rate at least seems to be on the up?
4: Unfortunately, they don't surprise me at all. Um, it's something we've been talking about for some time, as you, as you said, and we've been warning uh, the government, public media, that this is going to get worse before it gets any better, because we're not taking the appropriate steps to combat it.
0: You know this world, you came from this world. um what is the problem what where where why would we see why have we seen an upswing? Is it the availability of 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 weapons? there's it's easier to to get them now or is it uh, are we seeing just a shift in 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 the uh, sort of the attitudes towards you know, i guess the attitude towards life in some senses?
4: yeah, you you sort of touched on it there's there's layers to this, but if I were to point out the two top two main issues, it would be. Um, the culture of violence has changed. Um, social media has played a huge role in, in that. And the fact that it doesn't shock anyone as, as it used to. You know, there's, there's not enough public outrage. You know, a, a kid gets shot 12 years old and it's in the headlines for a day or two. So that's one issue. Uh, the second biggest is access. Access to illegal firearms has gone through the roof. So tackling those two issues would, you know, create a huge dent in in, in combating violence. Now,
0: yeah, I saw you tell a really interesting story uh, in front of a committee about how quickly a young person was able to find an illegal weapon. I think it was two hours.
4: Correct. Um, we carried out an experiment for a another media outlet, and fortunately, one of the things that makes us effective at our jobs is that we have the trust of, of, of the communities. We have the trust of people who are kind of living on, on, on the fringe. And, you know, they wanted to see how quickly we could uh, uh, get them an, an illegal firearm. And we, we explained to the parties involved what they were participating in, and they were more, more than happy to do it, which is crazy in itself.
0: So we're dealing with a multi-layered problem here. The so- social media is driving a certain uh, brazenness. The population's getting immune to it, at least to the violence. And uh, there are more weapons out there to carry it out. It seems like a, it seems like the trifecta, right? And you've been warning about this. You have been warning about this. You, you need to tackle the finger pulling the trigger, not the trigger itself.
4: Absolutely. Absolutely. We have to deal with it. You know, it sounds very repetitive. I've been saying it for a long time, but dealing with the root cause, risk factors. And that's not just things like mental health and poverty and systematic things, but dealing with individuals um, and what those issues are. There's so many layers to why kids, youth are acting out and us not catching, uh, you know, these, these behaviors soon enough or, or not paying attention, you know, and there's layers to that too. Parents have to work, you know, prices of everything are through the roof, you know rents rent is skyrocketing. People have to work harder and pay a lot less attention to their children and depend more on a system that may not necessarily be uh, able to identify these, these issues.
0: Marcel, from your time, um, are you hearing different stories? Are you hearing a change from the from the kids you talk to about what it's like to be out there and part of Part of a criminal gang these days compared to what it was like even five years ago.
4: One hundred percent. Some of the work that I've done in the past has been rooted in uh, counterterrorism work, and one of the one of the major things you have to do in order to combat any issue is be able to identify it. Gangs, criminal organizations, their ideology is and always should be rooted in capital gains. When you talk about extremism and terrorism, it's usually a religious ideology, political, something along those lines. So the type of violence we're seeing now, there's no rhyme or reason behind it when you fit it into the category of gangsterism. Um, When you don't see that the drive behind it has to do with dollars and cents, we have to start reclassifying so that we can identify it properly and then create the tools to try and combat it. So what we're seeing now looks a lot more like terrorism than gangsterism. We call it a, disorganized crime.
0: Yeah, that's a really interesting way of looking at it. How so is it? Because it's, it's almost, um, how does that work? Because it doesn't make financial sense, right, to be, to be killing each other.
4: Well, for example, in my day, I was with an organized organization and I mean, violence was a last resort. Um, You did that. If you know, someone was messing with your money your turf, uh, you were losing in some way where in what we're seeing now is violence can happen based on a video, a comment that happens online. So, If guys in our group went out and committed acts of violence on their own, unsanctioned, that brought negative attention to the group, uh, unwanted eyes from law enforcement to the group. So it had to make sense. If it didn't make sense, then you just weren't allowed to do it. And if you did, there were consequences and repercussions for it. So we're not seeing any of that now. There's there's no governing body that is, is kind of... Overwatching what's happening here—it's just a free-for-all,
0: disorganized crime, as you put it. Absolutely, and that means that anything can turn violent. Right? Any slight, any—so this isn't about turf. It isn't about theft. It isn't about territory or supply. It's about anything. Slight, absolutely.
4: For 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 instance, yeah, there just uh, about two weeks ago. We had a young lady that uh, is a client of ours. Uh, she's 12 years old. Um, you know, we're, we're an anti-bullying group too. We design anti-bullying programs because this is one of the root cause risk factors. She was getting bullied at school. And that led to problems outside of the school where a young a teenager, uh, 15 years old, and his friends that were, you know, 17, 18, threatened this young lady that if she went to school, on the Monday, they would kill her. The, the the insane part about this is that they actually showed up and there was physical violence at an elementary school for a 12-year-old girl. There's no criminal organization out there. And I'm not saying they have morals or ethics, but I, I'm just saying that there's no organization out there that would sanction that or allow it. You know, where we're seeing a lot more of this now, it's just, it's it's insane.
0: How do you, if it, if it's if it's as you describe, obviously, how do you fight that? How, how do you, because clearly gun rules won't change things. If you can get guns so easily, it doesn't change anything. Um, punishment doesn't change much if it's that uh, irrational to begin with, to some extent, you sort of threatening tough on crime doesn't really work, does it, in, in that situation. So what can you do? Um,
4: well, after working in this space for some time and myself going through a positive change uh, that we've That we've dubbed or called the internal realization of transformation process but in order to get there um, there are a few things we can do sort of immediately one an acute focus on removing as many of the illegal guns off of our streets now so that is support at the borders and supporting our uh, police forces in getting these guns off the streets once we do that right punishment is is not the solution without rehabilitation. Um, we have to start offering programs to these guys that are going to be released back into your communities one day. um there there there's definitely not enough of that happening. We have to stop politicizing this this issue. This is a Canadian issue. This should not be a partisan issue. Um, we need all levels of government to actually come together. And, and work together on this, including you know the, bureau- the bureaucrats, the, the private sector, the grassroots organizations, sharing data and actually working together because everyone, from what we've seen, operates in silos. And then we have to start getting to the at-risk or high-risk demographic very young. We have to start, you know, we work with children as young as six or seven years old because we start to see behaviors that you wouldn't see 20 years ago. And that's because six or seven-year-olds didn't have access to information that, right. that we didn't have 20 years ago. So we have to start at those places, and you'll see a huge difference, a huge decline.
0: Are you confident? Do you, see, do you feel like you're seeing what you need to see for us to start moving in the right direction in the not-too-distant future? Because you're right, we're reading about incidents at schools and things like that that we haven't seen in the past, at least not frequently or not regularly.
4: Unfortunately, um, I I don't see enough happening in in a time frame that it should, um, for whatever reasons. And I mean, you know, kids are getting uh, introduced to violence much younger. They're getting introduced to to illicit drug use much, much younger. And it's like we know what we need to do to to counter this. But there's a lot of um, analysis paralysis kind of happening. You know, right. everyone wants to talk, but nobody wants to actually roll out with action items or tangibles.
0: Yeah, I mean we've we've been, yeah we've been there before. I know. I mean, it would make sense. It seems to me, given your your experience, your personal experience, that if we were to to fund more of what you would be looking for, we'd probably be off to a good start here.
4: Oh, absolutely. Um, there are some fantastic organizations across the country. That put in blood, sweat, and tears and just don't get the support. And my, part of my fight when I started this, I came in broad eyed and bushy tailed, I'm gonna help try and change the world, um, was that, you know, oh, they just don't know what's going on. We have to educate them. But we've now sat at enough of these tables, been in enough of these rooms to know that they know what needs to be done. So now my, my my new fight, I guess, would be why? Why are we not doing the things that we know need to be done in order to combat the issue? Why are we focusing on things that are going to make little to no difference, i.e. banning legal firearms and, and, and things of, of this nature, where we could be dumping the majority of those resources into the things I just meant, mentioned, uh, the border Supporting our police and supporting grassroots organizations like ours that that work with the demographic.
0: Yeah, I heard you mention once that no one that you had ever known had ever gone and used, had ever used a a legally purchased firearm in the commission of anything.
4: Correct. I've I've never seen it happen. Um, I'm sure it has throughout the history of, of, you know, Canadian criminality, but I, I personally have never seen it. And I've never actually seen anyone actively go out and seek a legally sourced firearm in order to kill someone. It's just, it just doesn't make sense.
0: Well, I, I, I hope that these new statistics at least wake people up to the fact that it's moving in the wrong direction and whatever we're doing is not working. And therefore, we should be looking for solutions such as the ones you're proposing. Uh, Marcel Wilson, thank you so much for your time tonight. I really appreciate your insight on this.
4: Absolutely. Thank you for having me.